Welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Jeff Young, an editor here. A few months ago, I got to interview one of my heroes. I'm not going to say much more at this point, but I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here goes. Okay, Professor, can you just give a word or two so we can set your levels? Sure. Um, progression, lead, paragraph. Okay, that's John McPhee, longtime New Yorker writer, Pulitzer winner, and one of my heroes. The quick brown fox jumped over Minnesota. <laughs> okay, Jeff, are you hearing him okay? I'm hearing all those words. Thanks. His writing has this hypnotic power. It's kind of deeper layers of meaning that sneak up on you. He's just a master. But I wanted to talk to McPhee about his other career as a teacher. He's taught the same class at Princeton for like 43 years, and he's devoted to it. In the semesters when he's teaching, he, he stops everything else, all his research and, and writing, to focus on the 16 students in his seminar. Why do I teach? Um, well, when when I started, I, I was substituting for somebody else who quit a, a month before the semester began. Yeah, that's right. He stumbled into teaching by accident, starting out as a sub. And I... They called me up from the university. I was working across the street on where I had a little place where I wrote. And when they asked me to come over and teach this course in nonfiction writing, uh, I said yes immediately. And that, that was an instinct. And the instinct was that it would be helpful and complementary to my own work as well as the teaching. And that's how it's proved over 43 years, or I wouldn't still be doing it. It's a very symbiotic thing. I I get a lot out of doing the teaching. And what I get is that my own writing stops. I have a period of, of three, three to four months when I'm concentrating on the, on the writing of these young people and but not on my own. And there's a, there just is a crop rotation factor there that, I mean, there's no way, to, no way I could um, measure this, but I believe that I've written more in terms of my books and articles and everything else over the years since I started teaching 43 years ago than I would have uh, had I not been teaching. His class has become legendary in journalism circles. David Remnick took it. Peter Hessler, another New Yorker writer, did. Jennifer Weiner, a best-selling novelist. There's a long list. When I found out that McPhee essentially lays out his course in his latest book, called Draft Number 4 on the Writing Process, I was eager to talk to him about his craftsmanship as a teacher. To my surprise, though, he downplayed his impact in the classroom, and he even suggested that you can't really teach the kind of writing that he, in fact, teaches. I'm absolutely sincere when I say this, that David Remnick would be the editor of The New Yorker right now if he had never heard of me or any course that I teach. I just am sure of that. And Jim Kelly would have been the managing editor of Time as he was. And so, so anyway, I just, I mean... They get practice writing and, and they are in conversation and, it's, and it, it does. I mean, I hope it helps. One analogy that I've often used is that, I mean, you know, particularly in answer to a, a sort of age-old saw question, you know, do you really think you can teach writing? You know, with the, and this is almost rhetorical because the person who's asking the question believes you can't. And uh, 
my response to that kind of thing is that um, that I used to teach. I, I I was a Red Cross water safety instructor at a camp in Vermont, and I taught I taught life saving, and I taught swimming, and everything else. Everybody I dealt with, they were older kids, could swim. So what did I teach them? I I told them I taught them how to move through the water a little more smoothly and efficiently. I taught them this and that about, you know, swimming and swimming in a better way. And and uh, that's what I do as a writing teacher. I mean, I look at stuff and do this, but I don't create the writer uh, at all. With all due respect, I do have to disagree here. And I have personal reasons to believe he has more of an impact than he lets on. Have, have you <laughs> mentioned the fact that you are one of those students? No, that was my. I was going to reveal that. Oh, well, I'm revealing. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was one of his students back when I was a sophomore in college, about 20 years ago. I'm one of his not so famous students, but I have to say, he just had this enormous impact on me. When I sat there in his wood panel classroom as a baby faced, out of place, middle class kid from Georgia. Since then, I've wondered many times what's the magic? He taught me how to write, but how? I'm going to slow things down and let the rest of this conversation play out and then come back and try to figure out what to make of his thoughts on teaching. I think writers are unique, and that would mean that each of the 16 kids in my class in a given year is is different from all the others, and no one will ever be able to write just the way you do and so on. It's like a thumbprint, and my work with them is based on that, and the core of the course is private conferences about their writing, but the private conferences are not to tell them to try to teach them that it must be done this way, but to help them do it their way. Yeah, I think it, people might be curious about how the course works. So so basically, this is a 16 people. It's a, a workshop class, right? How would you describe, like, what's your, what's your sort of quick description of it for those? Well, first of all, workshops usually involve people talking at considerable length and time uh, in the class about each other's work. And we do very, very little of that. It's really not a workshop. The workshop aspect would be the private conferences with me. In the seminars, there there are visitors, five of the 12 seminars, other writers, uh, grammarians, people like Mary Norris. And um, and then seven of those seminars, I'm just carrying forth on uh, different topics related to writing. And but but it isn't really you know a workshop where where it's just a, sort of like an open precept of people talking with each other. That that is uh, that that would be a little off the mark to call it that. Okay, so why why did you design it the way you did in in the way you described instead of making say a workshop or some other? Well, way? I guess because when I was in college uh, at this college, I uh, uh, reacted to the workshop idea. I, I mean, I, I I wasn't learning much from other other students, and uh, it might have been that, whatever, but I set up this course the way I did, probably in reaction to uh, things that had occurred in my own life and earlier. One of the things I remember most um, about when we had those those in-person meetings was that you had circled a word on, you know, a verb I'd used, and, 
and you walked me over to a, a the dictionary you had in your office. I think it was on a, a stand and you were like, went to that word and pointed to me and we read over the di- the definition together and you were sort of saying, is that the meaning that's best or, you know, maybe something different. Um, and, and that is, it's funny after um, all these years, it's really stuck with me, um, this kind of care and crafting of, of every word. And from your book and from your comments now, I can kind of see that this is, this is something you probably did with, with much, with many of your students. Um, is that, is that the effect you were you were going for in really just kind of embodying this writer's craft as you see it? That that aspect, sure. I mean, that's one thing out of you know many. But um, those words, when you get up and go over and look at the dictionary, or whatever, that's that's the kind of thing that occurs in draft number four. And draft number four is the most fun. It is the last go you have at your piece of writing. And what I do is draw boxes around words that are perfectly good words, but there might be a better one, not a bigger one, not a more recondite one, but a better one. And you do this by by haunting dictionaries after you have identified where that opportunity is. And with, with students' papers, I draw those little boxes around, and then that's what happened with with you, exactly. And I, it, it's part of my writing process all the way. And because it's the most fun, and draft number one is no fun at all, uh, I called this new book draft number four. I was struck by your book at how much of your class and your own process, it seems like you're passing down from the editors that you've had um, at Time Magazine and then at The New Yorker. Um, it, it was that is that fair to say that you're in a way you're just kind of putting students through the processes of editing that that you were put through or the what you thought worked or um and that you had adopted for yourself right i pretend in in my class and on those private conferences and everything and the preparation that that i do before them i am pretending that i am the student's editor and copy editor and that everything I have to say to the student is in the spirit of suggestion rather than correction. And that's the basis on which I, you know, do that. So absolutely, that's what it is. Now, the, in this book, my, my course is there. It's in, it's in the fabric of the book, I mean, from beginning to end. So tell me... As a former student, what am I going to do in the spring semester of 2018? Because I'm going to give them all the book, and the course is in the book, and now we're sitting in the seminar room, and I don't know what to do next. It's going to be fun. <laughs> it's going to be fun. You have given yourself. Uh, you have definitely given away your your tricks of teaching, but I, I, you know, I think there's something to the experience of it that just doesn't compare to reading it. Although I, my wife is a journalist as well, and I definitely told her to read this book because it's, um, it is it, it is the next best thing to to taking the class. But at the same time, I think having the, especially at that point in one's kind of writing and and trying just starting out having someone sit down with you, I mean, there's no, uh, I don't think anyone is going to feel like they would not want to take the class. Because, because of, yeah. those moments, yeah, those yeah. edits, those edits are what, are what That's you're there good. for. If anything, maybe it'll, maybe it'll help people, um, maybe it'll help people focus on those even more. You know, I think, I think as a student, I think you sometimes forget 
that um, it's not you're not there to hear some sort of set of facts from a lecturer mm -hmm. that the things that end up sticking sticking with you are the ones that are the the aha moments you sort of had on your own through some um, you know interaction with the professor you you ought to come to the first seminar and speak for five minutes at the start and tell them what you just said because that's that's exactly what will happen it'll be it'll be fun really that they have this book it'll it'll just be another dimension <laughs> um, is there a teacher that you had that most shapes the way you do things in the classroom? Yes. In fact, a very specific teacher who, whose name, this was a Princeton High School English teacher, and her name was Olive McKee. An English teacher has the writing component to teach and also literature, and the ratio is kind of up to the teacher. This teacher, to a phenomenal extent, put emphasis on writing. Of course, we read things, but but I I was in her class for three years, and we were assigned in, in most weeks of all of those three years three pieces of writing. And each piece of writing had to be accompanied by a structural outline of some sort. It could be Roman numeral one, two, three. It could be doodles. But it had to show that you were thinking about how you put your, were going to put your piece together before you wrote it. And that's, what, that, that's exactly what I do in my Princeton course and have done since year one in that course. She had you, I mean, imagine writing three pieces a week. I mean, I, you get a lot of uh, practice as a writer right there. I mean, I owe just a huge amount to her. And she, yeah, so that, and that's part of your fascination with structure, perhaps, yes. too? Yeah. Because yeah. that was one of the things I, I remember. And, of course, from reading your book, it's very clear. These these almost doodles you draw about the that you sort of, it's only if, after reading a bit of or hearing you explain it that you're like, oh, I see. That's the shape of that giant piece of, mm -hmm. of writing. Yeah, all this derives from, from Mrs. McKee. It's amazing. And she was the drama coach in the, high school as well. She, she, she was a pretty dramatic person. And um, she had us, not all of us, but particularly if we wanted to or anything, read what we had written to the rest of the class. There were a lot of these readings. And the other kids booed and threw spitballs and stuff at the, re at the reader. This was, <laughs> this was what it was like when I was a sophomore in Princeton High School. People booing me while I was reading in the class and so on. And I got some useful experience there, I guess. Sounds like a comedy bomb, a comedian bombing at an open right. mic night. It's or easy to bomb in your, with your peers in Mrs. McKee's class. <laughs> um, how, I guess I'm curious how much do you, as you, um, you know, especially when you started teaching the class, um, this idea of, you know, creative nonfiction or literature, in fact, would, would, might have even been, you know, kind of a new idea to some people. Um, I, I guess I wonder how much of teaching this class has also been about trying to promote or spread some of the ideas of, of doing the kind of work that you've devoted your, your life to. Uh, you mean sort of like what is creative about nonfiction and that kind of thing? And and just introducing students and, and new writers or budding writers to this to the idea that you could you know make a career out of doing liter creative nonfiction or doing the kind of work you do. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not a 
I don't look upon my class as some form of trade school, and and I don't and I don't pick the students. I mean, when I'm choosing out of seventy applications, uh, sixteen students, which is the hardest thing I have to do every year, is to is to turn down all those people. And um, when I'm doing this, I am looking at a sample piece of writing chosen by the student and uh, a letter to me telling me why what they why they want to take the class but my my criteria in in judging this is the nature of the prose i'm reading and that sense that focuses over everything it it i mean nothing counts like that uh ethnicity and and uh, gender and all that goes by the way when you're looking at this stuff and knowing that for three months you're going to be talking to this person and what is the prose like? (laughs) So what is it you look for in that prose that you're looking at? It's hard to say. The sound of it, the rhythm, the the, uh, sense of words, the relative simplicity, the the imagination, whatever comes through, and in in just in the way pe- the people put things, and it's very easy to overdo these things, and so that you know really is not uh, a great sign in itself. It's it's just you have a kind of a sense. It's uh, subjective, and it's uh, it's not something that's you know I don't sit there making little tick marks, and this person got a seven, and that person got an eight, or something. It's not like that at all. It's just a it's a it's a matter of subjective impression. You have all of this. Um, your book represents this, and you have all this hard won advice for writers. Um, but I'm curious, what do you have any um, sh- tips or advice from about teaching? Uh, what does it take to be a good teacher? Do you think? I don't know. I mean, re- relating well to the students, understanding what the students are interested in, and and. Uh, also being very given and enthusiastic about the subject yourself and, and desiring to do it. I'm there. I mean, for example, I'm there because I'm not because I'm some trained uh, English literature professor. I am there because because I'm a writer of nonfiction of 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 long time uh, from the New Yorker magazine. And so I'm I'm there so that they can. I, I tell them this. You, I'm going to look over your shoulder at your work. I'm pretending that I'm the student's editor, and you look over my shoulder at mine. They they read pieces of mine and they ask me questions, in the way that I'm asking them questions. That that's how it works. How do you rev yourself up for teaching the same class year after year? Because the difference is the students. Remember I said they're each, they're each yeah. unique and they really are and they come from all over the place. They, I mean, you came from Brunswick, Georgia and and right. uh, Shriya Saksaria two years ago came from southern India and that, I mean, those things are so different. You can't, you, I mean, it's not, that's no formula. And uh, so the, the students differ and the pieces of writing they do differ and that's why the course has a kind of armature in it that 
we that that uh, you know it's just the situation that we're there. But what? But but it's really fresh every year because of what I've just been saying about the individual students and and their choices of stuff to write about. After going through your book, I was kind of thinking of a takeaway, and I I don't know if I was I picked up on this back when I was a student um, of your class, but in some ways, I feel like one of the most important things that um, I picked up somewhere, probably, you know, and that, that your book really hit, gets at at the end is that you you can't have the experience for the reader, that you want to tell them, um, you know, fewer details sometimes, but just the right details so that it evokes something in the mind of the reader instead of, um, you know, you're, you're not, you're not, you, ha- you can't use every word, you're using very selected words to, to make an effect. And it sounds like kind of what you're saying about your class is that there's no um, there's no five step process you could guide someone through to, to get a result, but there but there is still something it, it's, it's, <laughs> that, 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 that you get from the experience. right. It's sort of it might be a bit osmotic. I don't know, but but one thing that you just touched on related to this that we're talking about was about the reader and saying less so the reader fills in more. There's a a terribly important concept of the creative reader, not just the creative writer, but the creative reader. You mention two or three things, and a reader puts a whole picture together in her mind. Stay out of that picture if you're the writer. Let the reader go on creating this stuff. You know, it's it's in the vein of less is more and Hemingway's iceberg image. And uh, the last chapter in this book is called Omission. And that's what it's about. Leave what you leave out, which is terribly, terribly important. And uh, one of the things it says, I, I, I won't go all the way through it, I but is if leave out the author. In other words, don't, jump around between your your reader and your material. Let the reader create what's going on. I believe writing is selection. Doesn't that phrase come up? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a kind of mantra, yeah. and it comes up over and over again. And in, in the book, I don't know, I haven't gone in and searched it in the computer, but writing is selection may be repeated eight times in this book or whatever because it's it, in the class it's it's repeated 80 times <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> okay so if teaching great writing is possible mcphee himself might sign up for such a course despite his prodigious output he's the last to say he has it all figured out i mean i go there at nine in the morning and i don't do anything I know what I want to do. <laughs> I can see the notes that relate to it, but I fiddle around and make excuses and do this and that. And then I go out after a couple of hours. I haven't done anything. And and I go play squash or whatever or used to. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bicyclist now. I, I ride bicycle 15 miles every other day, and I go out and do that. But, you know, the day is going on. And then in the afternoon, I'm back there. I know exactly what I want to try to write. I can see the notes in front of me. But something in me is is just blocked. It's just, I mean, I don't want to do it. It's too hard to jump through that membrane and get going. So about 5 o'clock, panic kicks in, really, because I'm going to lose the whole day. And I start writing. And I get 
maybe two or three paragraphs written before I go home because I always go home at seven. And, uh, and then people say to me, what a prolific writer you are. And I, <laughs> that's pretty funny to, to me. <laughs> anyway, anyway, that's the process. He's been singing this song for years. The idea that writing is always hard, no matter where you've published, how much money you've made, how many accolades you've gotten. The best we can do is get a few paragraphs down on paper and then maybe a few more, and then when there are enough, rework it again and again and again. When I heard that as a college sophomore, it sounded raw and vulnerable. It was not the tone I was accustomed to hearing from professors. But if the job of his teacher is to prepare students, he succeeded. He showed me up close the often agonizing and sometimes amazing life of a writer. Maybe he couldn't show me how to write exactly, but he dared me to try. And I'm glad I got to come back and thank him. Me too. Okay, Thanks so Jeff. much. Right. Thanks, Take care. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. Each week we feature conversations like this one, so please subscribe to keep up with future episodes. And you can support the show by taking a minute to give a rating or leave a review. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.